Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel. I'm my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great, Faisal. How about you? I'm great. You know, we, we've we got one thing that's very uh, different in our country versus, let's say, the states yeah. or other countries right now is the amount of immigration coming in. This federal administration in Canada has said, you know, we are we are focused on bringing immigration in. And there's there's you know there's a certain mindset when you when you talk about immigration and what many Canadians don't know is the amount of high net worth and ultra high net worth immigrant immigrants coming to this country. Yeah, who's coming into the country, right? It is you're right. So often the headlines are dominated by something that isn't the high net worth, the high educated, the people ready to work and create revenue and build families here, right? Yeah. So let's let's get not only about the the demographics, but let's get into you know what what's the 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 structure of these individuals and families yeah. that are coming here that are that are so called high net worth, uh, and we've got a great guest on the show for that. Yeah, uh, Chris Gandu's joining us. He's a partner, family office leader of KPMG LLP. Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, guys. All right. Well, uh, you heard the 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 setup here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about the uh, about immigration and maybe why the number of high net worth immigrants. Um, are coming to Canada that we're seeing. Give us some, because there's been some research out recently. Yeah, there was a report that just came out from Henley and Partners. And for context, Henley and Partners is sort of a global mobility firm that helps high net worth individuals acquire citizenship or residency in other countries. So um, certainly the right firm equipped to do this research. Um, and their 2023 report shows that Canada is attracting a significant number of high net worth individuals or families, and their definition of high net worth is essentially any individual or family that has in US dollars a million or more in investable assets. So you could be at a million, you could be at 10, 50, whatever the number is. Um, in 2022, the projection was that we'll gain a net thousand. We surpassed that, we hit 1200. And the 2023 projection is 1600 net gain by Canada. So that is fairly significant. So why is that? Why are they picking Canada when you can go anywhere around the world? We're hearing of places that have lower tax rates and other benefits and so forth that are out there. Why are they choosing Canada? Yeah, I mean, that is a million dollar question. And maybe you've just hit the nail on the head. Tax rates matter, but maybe they're not be all end all. Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, um, Faisal, we hit 40 million in population earlier this month. And I believe the numbers are stating that in the last 12 months or last year, um, there was the net immigration to Canada was a million. So I think, first of all, we're just letting in more people. So naturally, a subset of them is going to be the, wealth, the wealthy, right? So I think part of it's just that. The second thing is, if you look at wealth and wealth trends around the world, what people really want are a place where their money and assets are safe and a place where they can still educate their kids, raise their families, and run a business. And maybe there is no better place in the world than Canada. We have a safe political system clean water, clean air, good education system, healthcare, and more importantly, access to the North American US market, even if you're based in Canada. So I think it is a whole bunch of things together that make Canada an attractive place. Yeah, definitely it's why a lot of people come here and a lot of people stay here as That's well, because right. they That's have right. choice of leaving this country. Uh, when we look at this, Chris, when we look at um, the this high net worth uh, families coming to Canada, are they entrepreneurs? Are they uh, high-skilled uh, employees? Are they professionals? 
what's the what's the makeup of the of these high net worth individuals? Yeah, another great question. The report unfortunately just gives us a high level and it doesn't give us a breakdown, but I'd say the answer is actually all of the above. Um, one thing that the report does touch on is that one of the main reasons or an additional reason why these individuals and families are choosing Canada is because of our entrepreneur business visa program that is attracting exactly what you said, our folks that are entrepreneurs, have businesses abroad, and that want to set up a business in Canada. So this is something that's been in place since 2015. And in fact, the report does a very good job and says, if you look at the top 10 countries in the world that are attracting wealth and wealthy families, nine out of 10 have a program similar to Canada. So whatever the federal government is doing to attract these uh, business-minded families is working, and they're certainly a subset of uh, the high net worth individuals moving to Canada. So Chris, we know that immigration is a priority for the federal government right now. <clears throat> Population growth is an important piece of growing an economy. All of those things are connected, and it's, we need to attract people that have skills, education, and money right, in order to continue to grow the economy. Um, as we look out, uh, Alberta is projected to get, um, uh, a population expected to grow. Now, some of that's just migration from different provinces. Some of that will be immigration. But does the, does the report speak to what Alberta can expect uh, from attracting some of these new immigrants and the, uh, and the high net worth category? Yeah, you know, there's uh, this sort of a subset focuses on Canada. And there are some interesting Canadian trends that also show up. So part of what the report does is it looks at not just nations, but it also looks at the top 97, and I don't know why it's 97, not 100, top 97 um, sort of wealth concentrations in the world by cities. Um, not surprisingly, Toronto tops Canada. It was 14th last year, 12th this year. Vancouver is up there, uh, 29th, moved up from 36th. Montreal's there, but I think the dark horse is Calgary. We were 81st out of 97. And we have now bumped up to 55 out of 97. And that's an incredible jump. And I think it speaks to a bunch of things. Um, obviously, net migration into this province because of our resilient economy. The oil and gas sector has had a recovery. That plays a part in it. And I think the pivot that our province is making towards sort of new and emerging industries and the energy transition, I think all of that plays to our strengths. Chris, when, when you deal with high net worth uh, fams that are newly arrived to the country, to the city, um, there's a cultural change. And one part of the cultural change is the, the view of retirement or transitioning to retirement. Um, if you've been in the Canadian system for a long time, you kind of get the idea of let's retire at a certain age, let's you know divest of our assets and start to live off our savings. Is that still the same type of, of thought process with these newly arrived high net worth Canadians? Or is there a shift happening and changing that you're, that you're noticing? Yeah, Faisal, I think uh, people that leave behind roots and are setting up new roots in Canada, um, I think they are probably not looking to just come here and retire. It's sort of not a sunny beach destination. That's not why they're coming to Canada. So I think they're coming here um, and they actually may be working even harder because they want to set up a new life for themselves and their families. So I think, no, retirement is not on the horizon for them. They want to work hard and make a good living. And that's that's going to be the interesting part, Dave. When you look at um, this di different demographic coming to the country, uh, it's not a, I'm coming here to slow down. I'm right. actually coming here 
to speed up and right. to grow. And right. so that that's a very different shift. That will change the demographic numbers of people retiring in the in the local markets as well as the nation. For sure. Chris, was there anything, sort of a minute or less, uh, was there anything in the report that really caught your interest that you wanted to shed some light on that you found you know, stood out to you. Yeah, you know, uh, one interesting uh, data aspect is that when, again, the report looks globally at countries and saying where are high net worth families growing the most. And of course, you can expect China, India, where there's so much economic growth and the base effects where they start off with a small number, you can expect a larger growth in wealth there. But from the developed countries, Canada's top four. It's only Australia and Canada up there. So it's China, India, Australia, Canada in some sort of an order. So I think that bodes really well for our country and our future. And I think over the next decade, we expect uh, the aggregate high net worth uh, individuals and families in Canada to grow by 35%. So a straggling number, great for the economy, great for creating new jobs and wealth in our country. Chris, I want to thank you for that. Uh, help us understand what, uh, what the future looks like for us and, and the job I think we're doing as a country, right, in attracting educated, skilled, high net worth families from around the globe. Chris, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, guys. Been joined by Chris Gandu, partner, family office leader of KPMG LLP. Uh, less than, well, maybe a month ago now, so we held a session with our clients, a community session called Rediscover Your Retirement Purpose. Mm -hmm. And um, the premise behind that was some of the conversation, at least for me, had changed with clients. There was a, a general, like a higher level of anxiety I was sensing. COVID had changed travel plans. It had just changed plans for people, um, whether that was intentional or not. And so it was, it was fun to get together, challenge that, and get people refocused back on what is it that they're running towards in this period of time that we call retirement. Can, can you say that last piece about running towards? Because you and I have talked about this a bunch of times when it comes to clients that we've talked to or their experiences of what they're having. You're either, what, running away? Away or running towards something. And so we always now phrase it as, what are you running towards? Right, because it gets you focused on what is it you want, right? That's just a different way of saying, what is it you want? But you have to think of your own situation, and I can certainly say, yeah, there's I've spent uh, time certainly running from things, Yeah. but it's way more fun running towards what it is you want. Correct. Right? And that's, I think, an important piece of that ongoing retirement puzzle. And when you're running away from something, it makes retirement feel difficult. Right. So how about we speak to an author who has the book, Making Retiring Easy? Mm -hmm. So it's how to create the best retirement life um, for clients. But uh, Gary uh, Poyer is going to join us uh, right now. Gary, I want to first of all, thank you for taking some uh, time to be on the show with us. And um, I want to jump into uh, why the genesis of the idea behind writing this book. Maybe just tell us, I've shared with you a bit about our experience. I don't know why you wrote this book, but I am curious what you saw out there that, that you felt the need to, to write, this, uh, write this book. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Um, the reason I wrote the book was uh, I myself am a certified financial planner and met with clients a lot over the years. And I found that a lot of clients, they focused on the accumulation of funds, but they couldn't tell me what they wanted to do in retirement. And, uh, you know, at one time I wasn't able to really help them uh, you know, quite often clients would ask me, well, Gary, how much should I save for retirement? And uh, I would say, well, it depends on what you want to do. And uh, so that, that was kind of the reason I wrote the book was to help clients, especially the ones who were financially able to retire, but who didn't know what they wanted to do. 
I wanted to help them figure out what to do with their time in retirement so that retirement could be the best time of their life. And uh, so I just started putting my information together and out came the book. So when you look at what, what you, you've uh, accomplished in this book, there, all these discussions that you've had with clients, um, what have you found as being some of the biggest misconceptions? I think this is a good thing to start with is a lot of clients get things wrong or have misconceptions. What are, what are the biggest ones that you can recall? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is that you know, a lot of clients and a lot of advisors for that matter say to their clients, you wait until you retire and then you can figure out what you want to do. Don't worry until you retire. And I take the exact opposite um, view. I think retirement brings with it a sense of urgency. And the reason for that is we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know how long our spouse is going to live. We don't know how long our health is going to hold out. So I try and get people to have a, a plan, a blueprint for their retirement so that when they do retire, they hit the ground running. And uh, so I think that's one of the biggest ones because we all know people that pass away early in their retirement and, uh, you know, they just, they miss out on, on so much. So that's probably the biggest um, misconception. And I would say a second one is, you know, a lot of people focus in on a financial legacy. And I myself think a personal legacy is even more important because everyone has a story to tell and everybody is a story to tell. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people should really focus in on their personal legacy as well. I'm going to add another con misconception, I think, Faisal, and this is one that um, you and I come across regularly. And I, I spoke about it this week, actually, and it's this idea that your life is going to be fundamentally different in retirement than it is pre-retirement. Mm. So uh, I'll just use a simple example. How many people we get um, talking about, you know, health is going to become really important in retirement. And so I'm going to, I'm going to start working out seven days a week when I retire because I've got time. And we say, well, how much do you work out now? Oh, no, I, I've worked out in 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's, in, it's inconsistent that you're going to go from zero to seven days a week, yeah. right? Yeah. So good counsel is, well, if, if health is going to be important, then you need to incorporate it into your life today, and you will carry that into retirement. And fair, you might have more time, so you could maybe go from, you know, start at one day a week, work up to three or four, and then maybe get to seven. But it's, it's not going to be fundamentally different. You've lived your life a certain way for 30 years, Right. Soon as you hit retirement, it's not going to fundamentally change. So you're basically speaking about my, my situation with <laughs> golf, right? You're never going to be I'm a, terrible you're at a hockey it. player. I play maybe two <laughs> rounds a year, and I'm like, wait till retirement, yeah. and I can take this as a full-time gig. crazy. Nope, not, not going to probably happen. Not happening. You know, what's interesting, Gary, is that when, when we speak to clients about, you know, their transition to retirement, Many of them have romanticized or thought about retirement like a checklist. I'm going to travel here. I'm going to do these things. And it's literally like a bucket list right. um, or it's a honey-do list. Honey, you have to do this stuff. And then they kind of get into some sort of rhythm going, okay, I've done all the things that I've got on my list. Now what do I fill my time with? And that period in, in, is probably one of the most stressful for them because they've got a bit of void in their life. In your experience dealing with clients, when you uncover that situation, what are some of the pieces of advice you would give to them? Well, I think the bucket list is a good starting point. But I think what a person needs to do is 
go through a, a process. And, and that's what I did. I came up with 30 additional ways to think about retirement. You have to think about retirement from an encompassing perspective, because if you run out of things to do in the first couple of years, you're going to get bored. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to go work at Walmart or, you know, Home Depot or something like that. And you're going to not enjoy retirement. So I think what you need to do is sit down with an advisor and really go through a comprehensive analysis of what you like to do, what's meaningful, so that when you get your checklist complete, you're not, there, there isn't a void. You know what opportunities are before you and you know what your life purpose is as well. So uh, there's no reason for somebody to run out of things to do if they're aware of what the opportunities are that retirement's offering them. Some clients have come to the realization usually about 10 years into their retirement that purpose is the act of service. What are they servicing towards? Who are they servicing to help? Um, and who are they giving to? Could be family, could be their community, could be other, other people outside of their own country, whatever it may be. But they start to evolve to a point of finding out that act of service is one of the key ways to, to really illustrate what their, their purpose in life is. How hard is it for people who are so focused on their career, they're so driven in that, to turn that off and get into, get into this concept of retirement? Now, we only have about a minute to go, so I want to put that time frame in place, but just, just give us your, your experience on that. Well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of professionals especially, or business owners, they identify who they are with what they do. They retire, all of a sudden they, they lose their identity. They start to drift. What they need to understand is that what they did for a living was their purpose, but they can have a, uh, their purpose can evolve and they can have a new purpose. And uh, for people who never have had a purpose, retirement's a perfect time to identify what their purpose is. So your purpose will change over time, or if you're lucky enough, it'll stay the same, but uh, it, it will evolve. Gary, if anybody wants to get a hold of your book, how do they do that? Um, the easiest way right now is to, uh, uh, well, it'll be on amazon.ca at the end of June, uh, make retiring easy, or they can email me at gary at aspirepersonalachievement.com. And feel free to reach out to us on the, uh, on the website of morethanmoneyradio.com, connect with us, and we'll get you in li link with uh, Gary so you can get a copy of his book. Gary, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. We've been joined by... Uh, Gary Poyer, he is the author of Making Retiring Easy. question we get a lot um, is about trust. There's lots of confusion, and they seem to be a bit of a mystery uh, to a lot of people. So we thought we'd try to demystify that a little bit. And uh, in order to do that, we brought on Jamie Golombek. Um, Jamie's been a long-term guest of ours. He's Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. All right. Why don't we start with what a trust is? So very quickly, can you... Can you help our listeners and viewers understand what, it, what uh, structurally a trust is and what it represents? Okay, well, I think we'll start with what it's not. A trust is not a legal entity. It's not like a corporation. It's not an individual. It might be taxed like an individual. What a trust really is, is a relationship. And it's a special type of relationship between three parties um, where you have a settler that contributes property uh, to a trust. It's managed by a trustee for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So you have the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiaries, and it's a relationship uh, that often governs the use and control of an asset. So in other words, 
Uh, we often use a trust when we don't trust someone. In other words, we want to separate the legal ownership of property from the beneficial use and enjoyment of that property, typically by the beneficiaries, which could either be capital beneficiaries or income beneficiaries. But in a nutshell, a trust is a relationship. Jamie, there are two types of trust that people talk about, one while you're alive, one when you pass. Let's kind of break down the two. When would you use one while you're alive and when would you generally use one upon death? Yeah, so again, the terminology we use for the trust you set up while you're alive, inter vivos trust, which is just Latin for, you know, while you're alive. Uh, and basically, you use that if you want to do, let's say, I mean, it used to be very popular for income splitting when the rates were a little bit lower. Um, you might set it up for someone with disability. Uh, you might set it up uh, to protect assets uh, for other people that you don't want to have control of. You might even set it up for probate planning in some provinces where probate is a concern uh, using something called an alter ego trust. Those are all cop examples of inter vivos trust. A testament entry trust, on the other hand, is a trust that you can only set up uh, typically in your will. So your will would provide that your assets go, instead of directly to a particular beneficiary, it's held in a testamentary trust for their benefit. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why someone might want to do that in terms of protecting the estate, sometimes providing for a spouse uh, or a second spouse in case of remarriage, providing for kids of the first marriage. Like there's all kinds of more complicated issues that uh, you have kids with addiction issues, gambling, alcohol, drugs, things like that. Uh, lots of a variety of reasons. Uh, I would say that there's uh, very few tax advantages today of using a trust. Uh, either inter vivos or testamentary like there used to be maybe 15 years ago when, when they changed the law. So most trusts are actually not used for tax purposes. Some are. Um, there's some very specific uh, things we could talk about, but I would say for the most part, using a trust to control. If you want to control during your lifetime, you're using the inter vivos trust. If you want to control beyond or sort of from the grave, you're using your testamentary trust. Uh, there used to be, I'd say probably two years ago, where you could lend money to a trust while you're alive uh, at a prescribed rate, called a prescribed rate loan. That interest rate was what well, was 1% at that point in time. Um, and then you could have your beneficiaries, your children, your spouse, other people in there. Um, and any income earned by the trust, you could pass on to those individuals and split income. Today, the prescribed rate loan is about 5%. So it's not um, mathematically uh, better as much as uh, advantageous as it used to be. But there may be some reasons to have a trust uh, while you're alive today. So let's go through why it's not beneficial today and what are some other reasons besides income splitting that a trust while you're alive are worthwhile. Yeah. So again, you know, uh, we did a lot of prescribed trust two, three years ago when interest rates dropped almost zero and the prescribed rate was one. And what we did is we loaned money at one and then any return above one was then split in the trust and then paid out to all the kids or the grandkids and the nieces, nephews, the spouse, whatever. Nowadays, with a rate of five, uh, you know, you'd have to really get a guaranteed rate of return of more than 5% a year. Uh, and it wouldn't, wouldn't help you if it's capital gains because that's only 50% taxable. So you really have to break 5%. So we're not using them at all unless you already set one up for prescribed rate loan planning. But we are using trust for a whole variety of other things. So, you know, sometimes we are using a trust uh, you know, in provinces that have things like probate fees, it's not a big deal in Alberta, uh, but in other provinces like Ontario, BC, if you have a property over there, on death, there's a one and a half percent probate. Once you're 65, you could actually roll your existing property into the alter ego trust, or if you're married or living common law, a joint partner trust, pay no tax on the way in, 
And then on death, the amount goes to the beneficiaries. There's still income tax uh, if it's a second residence, but uh, there'd be no probate because it goes outside the estate. So you got to be 65 to do that. Uh, that's a common use of, of a trust. And then again, um, people are also using Canadian trusts sometimes when they're buying U.S. properties. If they're worried about the U.S. estate tax, depending on the size of the estate, there may not be any tax depending on the size of the property. But again, the idea is that if you own U.S. real estate and you're a Canadian, uh, the U.S. will tax you potentially on that on death. So we often would use a Canadian trust structure to buy the U.S. real estate. Again, assuming there's some significant net worth in the family and there's some significant property being purchased. That way, when you die, uh, you don't own the property on death. There's no estate tax. And ultimately, it goes via the trust, let's say, to the next generation. So again, number of creative ways, plus, of course, providing for someone with disability, uh, people with addictions. Those are all reasons why someone might use a, an intravivos trust today. We get the question, Dave, a lot about should I get a trust? Should I get a trust? I think one of the key things that we go through as a filtering process, if it's suitable or not, or worth an investigation, is the amount that you have in the trust. And so um, uh, when you look at this, uh, Jamie, when you say, how much should a person have for an intervivus trust, a testamentary trust, before it makes it worthwhile? Because there's a whole bunch of costs that you have to pay to open up a trust. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it all depends. I mean, we've seen trusts uh, open up for as little as $200,000 simply because you don't want to give a kid $200,000 when they're 18 and just graduated from high school. You know, like my son graduated this week. He's in uh, he's 17 years old. Uh, you know, I don't think I would give him 200000 outright on his debit card. <laughs> Maybe I would use a trust, right, to be able to control that in, in some way or form, right, in terms of a gift and things like that. Um, and, and let's also remember that, uh, you know, sometimes there may be very little value right now. So we often use trust in the context of a private company uh, to do an estate freeze where we freeze the value of the company, which has, you know, uh, some value today, but it's really going to grow in the future. And we freeze the value and we issue new common shares to a family trust that actually has no value. And we hope that the company ultimately grows. And then when those shares are worth something, then all the family members that are beneficiaries of the trust could use their lifetime capital gains exemption, right? Which is about a million dollars per person right now, right? So there may be reasons why you would freeze a company which has value, but then issue the shares to a trust, which really have no value right now, other than the future potential growth on those common shares. So uh, look, I would say if it's, you know, 10, 20, 30, $40,000, a trust is really a waste of money. Um, but uh, once you're getting into larger figures, certainly in the six figures or more, uh, absolutely, uh, a trust can make sense. It really depends on your objective. Because again, in most cases, you know, if you were doing it for income splitting uh, at the 1%, I would have said half a million would be your minimum. Uh, you know, these days, if you're trying to income split at 5%, you probably need 20, 30 million to do it worthwhile. If you think you can get, you know, five and a half or six percent on a fixed bond portfolio, the incremental amount on that, plus the cost, the filing fees, you know, uh, things like that. So when you speak about estate freezing and so forth, for those who are entrepreneurs or business owners, they hear a lot about freezing your the share value for future. But one question that I always ask, and I get different answers, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. What percent, if you know, of, of business owners that actually sell the shares of their business versus the assets and goodwill because they, they could spend a lot of money on accounting fees to freeze their company, to structure it in a certain way, but then they just sell the business on for the assets and goodwill. They don't actually sell the shares and that defeats the purpose of the whole structure. 
Yeah, I mean, look, there's a real incentive. I mean, we've seen we're seeing mostly share deals, to be honest. But I mean, the real incentive on on the seller uh, is to be able to use their lifetime exemption. So it really depends on the size of the business. If your business was worth three hundred million dollars, you don't care about the lifetime exemption because it's worth about two hundred thousand dollars of tax savings, right? It's like, who cares? But you know, most businesses that are small businesses, they're being sold a couple million bucks here and there. And uh, again, I don't have the statistics on this, but at least anecdotally, uh, you know, when you're selling a small business, this this million dollar tax free is huge uh, because you're saving a couple hundred thousand dollars of tax. So uh, I just think it really, really depends on the size of the business and, and how much you're going to get for it. Jim, I want to thank you for joining yeah. us today. Basil, um, a common question that we get asked is, am I invested properly? Mm -hmm. They're referring to retirement, right? So I'm, I'm in retirement now. Second opinion, am I invested properly? It's an interesting question. There's a number of things that that conjures up in my mind when I hear it, like, what's your strategy? People can't explain their strategy. They don't know their strategy. Uh, there's, there's just a whole bunch of issues behind that particular question that you need to explore. But it's one that we thought we should explore because we've had it twice this week, actually, yeah. um, with some people that we're dealing with. In my particular case, dealing with an existing client whose parent was introduced to us and it didn't take very long to ask a few questions, and we could very quickly identify that this person's portfolio was just invested some way, wasn't really attached to the goals and objectives of that particular person. Yeah, what we find in many cases is that people have been sold to right. and have not built a strategy around. Excellent point. Yeah. Okay, and so, uh, and the frustration comes into, so just buy this product, it'll work. And, and we're, we're missing out on a whole bunch of pieces, such as what are the objectives of yourself as an individual, not right. just your risk tolerance. Right. And, and when it comes to different types of planning, because how you invest in an education savings plan may be different than how you invest in your retirement plan, which may be different than how you invest in your child's first time home buyer's plan, right. and so on and so forth. So you can you can see they're all different in the approach. And so I think when you when you mention the word strategy, when you ask individuals what's your strategy, they look at the output. Well, I want to retire. Well, I want to go to post-secondary education, or I want to buy a house, or whatever the goal is. That's not strategy. That's the outcome. Right. And even worse, in 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 a particular case, I different different case, it was about I just want a rate of return. Yeah. Right. Or I want to protect. Y yeah. Yeah. This one was about a rate of return. I said, Whoa, wait a second. Why? Right. Why? Why? There was a number that this person had in mind. Yeah. And it wasn't attached to anything. Yeah. Other than it was a number that. He had in his head. And that's a great point. So what ends up happening with many Canadians is some of them have calculated how much they need. And let's, let's make some numbers up here, sure. okay? Save a million dollars. You need $70,000 to come from your portfolio. That's 7%. Right. So I'm going to go out there and look at what gives me 7%. Right. Okay, that's just simple. Makes it easy. Yeah. Now you start <clears throat> combing the market and you look at ETFs, exchange rate of funds, mutual funds, people's portfolios, doing it yourself, whatever. As long as I got 7%, I'm fine. Yeah. What they've missed out on this is how are they getting that 7%? Right. There's a journey you go through from when you first invest your dollar through when you get that rate of return. Yeah. And that journey we call volatility or risk. Most people cannot quantify risk. Right. And so that's the next question is what's the risk that you're willing to accept in order to get that return? Right. The second part of it is do you really need 7% rate of return in order to get the cash flow you need. And let me give you an example. What if you have this million dollars in non-RSPs mm -hmm. and you need $70,000? Mm -hmm. Do you have to make 7% or more? Well, 
You have to make more. And what if it's in an RSP? You have to make more. But what if it's in a TFSA? You don't have to make more. There you go. Right. So, so a quantified number of 7% is not 7% always. Right. You'd have to make more. Right. And then how much risk are you willing to accept in order to get that more? Yeah. And I'm going to back it up one step further because in, in my particular conversation, it was really interesting when the first question I asked is, so what's the money for? And he said, wow, I haven't, I haven't asked that before. And so it was fascinating. And anyways, my, my point in saying this is um, rates of return, risk rates, all this stuff that our industry has done for lots of years is a secondary consideration to what, the, what, what are we trying to accomplish with the money, right? And so this is this idea of, of purpose, yeah. right? What does the money supposed to do for you? And here comes the complexity, especially in retirement, is you've got different goals, right? So you don't have a singular pot of money anymore. Yes. Very few people do, I should say. Correct. Right? You, you, um, you, you want to do some liability matching for income in many cases. What, what does liability matching mean for our audience? Right. So if you've, got a, a, if you've got some requirement for cash flow off your portfolio to support your lifestyle, right? You want to, like a pension plan does, is have a portion of those assets that you've got set aside for retirement matched to the cash flow need over time, right? The liability is what you and I call our income when we receive it. Correct. From the portfolio's perspective, that's the liability, right? So make sure you've got an income bucket set aside to do that. And then there's there's other goals and objectives, as you said, which can be quite diverse. And in some cases, they can compete against each other, right? You can't achieve the same thing with one investment strategy. I had a, a listener of our show call me up and ask for a second opinion over the phone. He's in his late 70s. Well, how should I be investing my portfolio given the economic environment was the question. Same question I yep. asked back, what was the purpose? Yep. Oh, I don't, it's not for me. This money is for my grandchildren. Well, how old are your grandchildren? One's 12, <laughs> the other one's 15, and then I've got like a four-year-old. Three grandchildren. Great, you got three grandchildren, and you're investing this money for them. When will they be using this money? Oh, not until they're done university. So 10 years from now, you got that much time. You can take on a lot more risk, mm -hmm. volatility, with the mindset that you're not touching this money for 10 years right. than if you were to do liability matching right. and have an income bucket where you need the money next month or next year. Right. And that's the difference of strategy right. versus is this the right investment? Okay, so I started this segment. I said, um, you know, the question was, am I invested correctly, right, yeah. for retirement? Let's add that. So uh, what I would uh, say to people is you want to, before you're asking that question, arm yourself, sit back, start thinking about what it is the money's supposed to do. And do not be surprised in any way, shape, or form when you have multiple things you've listed, Okay. Most Canadian families would say, I need some income. Mm -hmm. Boy, I need some growth because inflation's even at 2%, never mind at 8 at 2%, inflation erodes purchasing power over time. Correct. You have to grow to offset that. Most Canadians will face, most families will face some form of health um, issue along the way. And, and even if you're healthy to age 95, things change. Quality of care, quality of life changes. And you need to consider the impact of that on, on your retirement and ultimately, for those that are gonna be transitioning assets, how do you do that? We've got a couple of minutes. I wanna give the idea about healthcare because I think this kind of, well, I, open eyes for a lot of individuals. There are people who come to us and say, you know my recreation property? Yeah. 
well, if anything happens to me where I can't enjoy that property more and I need home care or I have to go into a home, I'm gonna sell that property and there's enough capital there to pay for my care. So we quantify in today's dollars, if, you ha if that happened today, mm -hmm. the money you have from in your property would cover the next 10, 15 years of your, your healthcare needs. I asked the question, what's the growth rate of your property? Mm -hmm. And what's the growth rate of costs of long-term care or home care? Right. And do they match? Right. And they go, no, home care and long-term care inflation rate is way more than what my property value goes up year over year on average. Mm -hmm. Well, then are you matched properly with the investment to match the goal? The asset and the goal, yeah. Is the strategy matching? Right. But no one comes to us and say, is this the right investment for me when it comes to real estate you being used for a healthcare need in the future? Right, right. It just seems like it's a bucket of money just waiting to be used and I'll just use it at that point in time. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this on plenty of shows in the past, it's silo thinking too, right? Yeah. So we often put our assets into different silos and you're not considering the full picture Correct. and what all these things are supposed to do. And when you do that, you can create all kinds of problems for yourself. Correct. We're going to talk about how to, how to take care of your, your golden years of your life, yep. the transition to retirement, to protect your income, make sure you're growing your, your portfolio over time and weathering all the volatility we're experiencing on the 25th of July, 7 p.m. at Hamptons. Register at uh, morethanmoneyradio.com. You know, Faisal, I think we've had a really, uh, really good show today talking about the purpose of retirement, okay? It's always gotta start there. We're talking about specialized strategies like trusts today and trying to demystify those things, right? And then this whole notion of you gotta back it up, you gotta match assets, right? We call it asset dedication. Dedicate assets to do certain things in retirement and there's multiple goals. And please, if anything, if you, if you can take from this, the one thing you can take when it comes to your portfolio is understand the volatility or risk that you're invested in. Right. Because if you, the, 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 what can really hurt you is not knowing that whole picture. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, we wanna thank you for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. We'll look forward to talking with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.